The scripture text for this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, what more needs to be said? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that everything that we receive is pure grace. And Lord, as we were worshiping this morning, just being impacted by your greatness and being made aware of how as finite creatures and as fallen sinful creatures, we cannot actually comprehend you in your fullness. And even as redeemed, born-again believers and dwelt by your Holy Spirit, we still can't fully see you or fully receive your greatness. But I pray that you would continue this morning to open our eyes a little bit more to enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit through the cross to help us to see you a little bit more clearly so that we might glorify you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us with joy even as we consider trials and suffering. We simply ask that you would bless your people. I pray that my words would honor your word. May your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, have you ever felt weak? Have you ever felt so incredibly weak that you didn't think you could go on another day? And due to trials in life that just weighed on you, and maybe your trials have been physical, maybe sickness, or maybe a chronic ailment that you've struggled with for years and you've prayed countless times for God to bring healing and yet it continues to plague you. Or maybe it's emotional suffering, suffering due to sin in your own life or in the life of someone close to you, or maybe an estranged relationship with someone that you used to have such close fellowship with. Or maybe spiritual suffering, suffering under the weight of your own sin that plagues you and that you can't seem to overcome. And maybe in, that, in those times you even feel that God himself is against you. Or maybe it just seems like the smaller daily trials are just coming like waves, one after the other, after the other, and they just won't let up. The reality is that we all face trials of various sorts. And one thing that all of our trials have in common is that they cause us to feel weak. And sometimes they cause us to feel so incredibly weak that we feel that we simply cannot go on. As humans in a fallen world, we are all at times made very aware of how weak we really are. And it's my prayer that through the word of God this morning that the Holy Spirit would bring comfort and peace and even joy, even in the very midst of the trials that we face in life. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul shows us that far from leaving us hopeless, our weakness which is manifested through trials, is actually a means of grace, of power, and of joy. And though it seems completely counterintuitive, I hope that we would be able to see by the eyes of faith that this is truly the case, that our weakness is ultimately for our joy, our eternal joy. The analogy that Paul uses to highlight our weakness is by comparing us to jars of clay, not iron or rock or steel or some precious metal, but clay. And far from being indestructible, clay is very fragile. Clay cannot withstand much of any force that would come against it. It is very easily broken. Paul compares us to clay. He compares us to clay to show us how weak we are. Well, would you read verse 7 again with me? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I think it's important that it's not just the material that Paul wants us to relate to, but the form of the clay is also an important aspect of his analogy. We are like jars of clay. And if you think about it, a jar is really only good for one main purpose, namely to hold something. And it's interesting that even though clay is very fragile, it's also able to hold some of the most powerful elements in the world. Maybe first think of water. Water is a very powerful force, yet a clay jar can contain it. And and then uh, 
we can also think of fire. Maybe you remember the account of Gideon and his 300 men who took their torches and put them in clay pots to conceal them until just the right moment. And the treasure that Paul is referring to, that we contain, is specifically the light of Christ. And so, yes, jars of clay are fragile, but they're able to contain great power. And though we ourselves are frail jars of clay, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope, we contain the most powerful force in the universe, namely God himself. More specifically, God the Holy Spirit is indwelling us even now. That is amazing. So we are weak, but God is infinitely powerful and he has chosen to work through us. And Paul tells us that this is by design so that it would be clear that all power, all glory is God's alone and not ours. So consider it, think about it, receive it. Our weakness is by design and for a purpose so that all the glory would belong to God. And we'll see later in the passage, that we're not exactly losers in this God-ordained equation of our weakness displaying his power. But God doesn't just say that we're weak. He doesn't just declare that we're weak. But he uses trials in our life to manifest our weakness. We can see this in verses 8 and 9. We see how trials manifest our weakness, but because of the power of God, at the same time, we are also sustained and protected through them. I mean, really just think of how small of a drop would completely destroy a clay pot. And yet somehow believers are able to face many and sometimes extreme trials and yet are still protected by the power of God and are kept from being destroyed. Will you look at verses 8 and 9 with me? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Becoming a Christian does not mean that our life will be pain-free. Not only does God not keep us from trials as believers, but he actually designs the trials in our life for a purpose. And one of the purposes we see here is to reveal our weakness and his power. Without trials, we would not be aware of our weakness. Without trials, we would not see our need for God's power. Without trials, we would not give him the glory that he is due. And in this simple way, all trials are not without purpose. So God doesn't remove our weakness when, he become a, when we become a Christian, but instead he chooses to show his power through our weakness. And really it is amazing that we, as compared to easily breakable jars of clay, are filled with the very power of God and are protected by that power both now and for all of eternity. To God alone be the glory. And there really are no limits to the types and severities and to the severity of trials that God is able to use for his glory and our ultimate joy. In his ministry as an apostle, Paul faced significant and severe trials, and yet Paul counted it a privilege 
and somehow was even able to rejoice in his suffering. And it's clear that many of the trials that Paul faced served to highlight God's power and his unstoppable purposes. And without the suffering, what might be led to think that this whole Christianity thing was just a movement based on powerful and influential men. But when we think of the trials of Paul and the early apostles and the trials of believers all the way through the church history to today, it becomes very clear that there's no other explanation for the mere existence of the Christian church than the power of God. And so it's in this way that our weakness manifested through trials serves to highlight God's power in the world. So if you would, let's look at verses 10 through 12. And just to give some context, uh, much of what Paul wrote in the book of 2 Corinthians in his second letter to the Corinthians was to defend the validity of his apostleship. Many people were likely questioning whether he was a true apostle when they looked at the, the negative things happening in his life, when they saw his weakness and all the troubles that he faced. But Paul is showing that his weakness and afflictions were for a purpose and should not cause people to question his apostleship. So verses 10 through 12, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So Paul's suffering, his weakness, his trials weren't evidence that he wasn't a true apostle, but in reality, his suffering actually reflected Christ's suffering. And even more than that, his suffering actually reflected Christ's life because only through the power of the resurrected Christ could Paul have been able to endure such great suffering and yet continued to preach the gospel and continued to work to build the church. And his suffering was for the benefit of the Corinthian believers. Let's continue uh, verses 13 through 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So Paul's suffering was for the sake of the church. And through his suffering, grace extended to more and more people. And isn't it interesting how suffering does not make the church cease to exist, but actually causes the church to grow And it's important for us to recognize that even now, for those that are on the mission field in parts of the world that are hostile to Christianity, they are are suffering and sharing in Christ's suffering literally to the point of death. And it may not be our experience here, but it's important for us to understand the reality of the call of many Christians to face the same type of suffering that Christ himself suffered. 
if we are followers of Christ, we should not think that it's out of the ordinary to encounter trials any more than Jesus' life was without trials. If we are followers of Christ, we should not think it's strange for us to encounter trials any more than Christ's life was without trials. As Jesus said in John 15, 20, no servant is greater than his master. We are not somehow owed a trial-free life because we are a Christian. Look at verse 16 with me. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So, the trials that we face display God's power. And here in verse 16, we see that the trials that we face also serve to renew or to strengthen our spirit, our inner man. Though our bodies are often negatively impacted by trials, if we're abiding in Christ, our trials actually serve to bring spiritual growth. We can see this in the pruning analogy that Jesus uses in John chapter 15 where he says that he prunes us so that we would bear more fruit, not less. Pruning itself, of course, is painful. We need to recognize that. But it's so that we would bear more fruit, And it comes from our Heavenly Father who prunes us and disciplines us as a loving Heavenly Father for our good and for our growth. So yes, our bodies are being worn out by life in general and the suffering and trials that we face seem to accelerate that decline. But the trials in our life are a means of grace to actually renew our inner man. And by the grace of God, through the Spirit indwelling us, those trials, though they may actually accelerate the downward trend of our outer man, serve to increase the accelerated growth of our inner man. Our inner man is being renewed day by day, only by the power and grace of God. And so we've seen two significant ways that, tr- that God uses trials for good. He uses them to display his power in the world, and he uses them to cause us to grow in Christ. In verse 17, we see another positive aspect of our suffering. And it's one that's so significant, I'm afraid that we won't receive it. It's one that I have a hard time receiving because of its significance. But I pray, again, that God would open our hearts to be able to receive even a little glimpse of what the truth is in verse 17. Paul says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our suffering is preparing us for something that it is so great that it's beyond all comparison. And if we would receive it, if we would be able to receive it, it would be an incredible source of peace and joy, even in the midst of suffering. But it must be received by faith. It must be received through the Spirit. The difficulties that we face are preparing us for something so wonderful that it's beyond our comprehension. What we will receive in the life to come 
is so incredibly great that it makes Paul describe his trials, his severe trials, as light and momentary. Paul was not a stranger to trials. I referred to them earlier, but I want to read through them now, his account of some of his trials. And as I do, I want us to consider that Paul himself says these things are light and momentary in comparison to what we will receive in, in eternity this list is later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 23. Paul recounts some of his trials. He starts with countless beatings and often near death, light and momentary. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Light and momentary. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Light and momentary. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Light and momentary. On frequent journeys in danger from Rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, light and momentary. In toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, light and momentary. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. All this was light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that we will receive from our Heavenly Father. And in reality, the greater our suffering here, the greater our experience will be of glory and of joy in the life to come. This is the reality for everyone who is in Christ. We are indeed more than conquerors. And God intends that this truth would give us comfort to help us stand even in the midst of the most difficult trials we may face. But we must embrace it by faith. Because it's concerning things that we cannot see. There's things that we cannot touch and grasp here and now. So we must grasp them with the eyes of faith. Well, in verse 18, Paul gives us some practical wisdom on how we can receive the comfort that the reality of our eternal reward should bring us. So let's read verse 17 again and then also 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Trials naturally cause us to look around us, to look at the things around us, to look at the things surrounding our trial in particular. And as we focus on those things, we are inevitably filled with anxiety, with fear, and sometimes maybe anger. And this is where it takes 
effort on our part. Paul says not to look at the things that are seen, and obviously he's not saying put a blindfold on, don't literally look around you, but he's calling us to actively look somewhere else. He's calling us to look upward. He's calling us to focus on the things that are unseen. He is calling us to look to Christ, to look to all that we have in Christ, all of his promises to look to our eternal inheritance. He calls us to meditate on the things that are eternal. And in the midst of trials that naturally cause us to look down, Paul is calling us to look up. And we need each other in this regard. We need each other to bear one another's burdens and to help us to lift our eyes to Christ. We need this gathering every Sunday morning to help us to look our to help us to look up to Christ and we need our brothers and sisters to daily remind us. So I'd like to take the remaining time that we have to give two general points of application. The first is for those, or for all of us, in regards to preparing for trials. And the second is for those that are currently in the midst of a trial. So first, knowing that trials are a part of God's design for believers, what can we do to prepare ourselves for the trials that will indeed come our way? And I think in a broad way, we could simply say, abide in Christ, abide in his word. But there are two truths in particular that I think are essential for us to know well and to believe firmly for us to face trials in a way that honors God. Those two truths are God's sovereignty and God's love. These are two precious truths truths that God used in my life to prepare me for the most significant trial in my life. As some of you know, I lost my first wife and unborn son in a car accident. And by God's sovereign grace, he had been specifically preparing me for that trial by meditating deeply on these two truths. God's sovereignty, and God's love. In particular, leading up to the accident, I had been swimming through a book titled The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. And I say swimming intentionally because if you've ever read any of the Puritan writers, you know it's work. It's not light reading. Um, But it is so good, and I really could not uh, commend highly enough I just happen to have a few with me. Um, The Puritan writings in particular, if you want to grow in an understanding of God's sovereignty and his love, I don't know a better way. And what's nice about the Puritan paperback series is they're small relatively to, say, a a work of John Owen or something. So um, they're doable, and I I can't commend them enough. The the book in particular that God was um, preparing me with in a significant way was called The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. Another one that I'd highly recommend is All Things for Good by Thomas Watson. And then the third along these lines is The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibes. And I'll mention a couple quotes from those books. So I can't commend them enough. 
Having a deep understanding of God's sovereignty and his love as a means of grace that gives us stability and hope even in the midst of our greatest trials. A biblical view of God's sovereignty does not only teach us that God will ultimately prevail over all of human history. It also teaches us that every step that we take, every breath, every day, every moment has been ordained by God. Every one of our days was written before there was yet one of them. And that means that every trial, whether it's small or great, is not by chance, but comes from the very hand of God. Whether it's stubbing our toe, or sickness, or getting a flat tire, or the loss of a loved one, or cancer, or death itself. God is sovereign, and therefore nothing you will ever face is random or by chance. And when we have a high view of God's sovereignty, it will calm our souls and serve to keep us humble. God's distribution of trials in our life is not random, and therefore our trials are by design and come from an all-knowing and all-powerful God. Or as a preacher that we heard down in Lafayette, Indiana said, our, our trials are tailor-made. They are designed specifically for us. It is important for us to recognize that God is not only, only sovereign over our blessing and successes, but he is just as sovereign over our suffering. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritan writers, puts it this way, and this quote hopefully makes it up on the screen. Thank you. He says this, It is one heart-quieting consideration in all the afflictions that befall us that God has a special hand in them. The Almighty has afflicted me. Instruments can no more stir till God gives them a commission than the axe can cut of itself without a hand. Job eyed God in his affliction, and as Augustine observed, he does not say, the Lord gave and the devil took away, but the Lord hath taken away. Whoever brings an affliction to us, it is God that sends it. God is sovereign. But having a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God may not necessarily be encouraging in and of itself. And in reality, in and of itself, it would be an utterly terrifying thing to consider. Unless we are convinced that God is for us and not against us. Unless we are convinced of God's love. And the good news is that if you have placed your faith in Christ and have been united with him, then God is no more against you than he is against his only precious son. Now maybe at times of trials and suffering, you're led to doubt God's love for you. 
But I would ask you this in those moments. Do you doubt God's love for his son? Do do the trials that God ordained for Jesus cause you to question his love for him? Well, I would guess that none of us doubt God's love for his only precious son, Jesus. And the amazing reality of the gospel is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that God's love for you is no less than his love for Christ. So if you are a believer, regardless of the trials that you're facing now or will face in the future, you can be absolutely certain that God is for you and not against you, and he will always be for you. So understanding God's utter sovereignty and perfect love for you is a rock that can withstand any trial. And if God is completely sovereign, and if he has proven his love to you through the cross, then that means that every trial must be, without exception, for your good. If God is sovereign and he has proven his love to you through the cross, the cross, that means that every trial you will face must be for your good. So meditate on the sovereignty and the love of God and remind yourself that if he is sovereign, nothing, nothing is without purpose. And in reality, I think oftentimes it's the smaller trials or the chronic ongoing trials that are harder for us to handle well. And one of the Puritan authors points out that the reason for this is that with smaller trials, we tend to deal with them by our own strength. We don't tend to look for God's hand in them or God's providence in them or what God might be wanting to teach us through them. We simply seek to deal with them by our own strength. Yet with the larger, significant trials, we are much more quickly made aware of our need and much more quickly look to him for help. And I've definitely found that to be true in my own life. So don't only consider his sovereignty in the big things of life, but let every trouble you ever face lead you to look to Christ, to look upward. And for the second point of application, For those who are currently in a trial, currently feeling the weight of suffering of any kind, there are three things that I would like to say to you, three things that I hope will encourage you and help you to have victory in your trial. First, your trial is not an indication of God's anger with you. If Christ died for your sins and bore all the wrath, all of the righteous anger of God on your behalf, then there is none left for you. God has not sent a trial your way because he is angry with you, but because he loves you as a father and desires to see you grow and to see you find your refuge in him. And he desires to manifest his power through your weakness. He is not against you and is not out to get you. He seeks to prune you for your good and for your eternal joy. Even if your trial is the direct result 
of a sinful pattern in your life. It is evidence of God's love for you, not his anger. And second, I'd like to exhort us to guard ourselves from anger toward God. Anger reveals the sin of unbelief, that we do not accept his word to us, that he loves us and has our best in mind. That said, don't simply seek to hide or suppress your anger, but confess it. Confess it to God and to others. It's not uncommon to wrestle with anger in the midst of trials. But be open and honest with God and with others about all the feelings that your trial is causing you to wrestle with. God knows that we are but dust. He does not expect or desire that we would simply become an unfeeling stone. David was a great example for us of someone who expressed raw feeling and at the same time recognized that there was a reality that transcended his feelings and experience and so he was able to rest and even worship in the face of things that didn't make sense to him. So God's desire is not simply that we would suppress our pain, but that we would allow our pain to drive us to him completely open. And when we do, he will bring healing in time. And thirdly, pray that God would give you eyes to see his eternal purposes for your trial. Don't simply try to get to the other side, which is natural. None of us enjoy trials. We are all looking for the way out, and we pray to that end. But don't simply kick against the goads and simply seek to get through it, but seek to quiet your heart and ask God to help you to see what he is wanting to teach you through it. And at the same time, be content to not have all the answers. There may not be clear insight as as to the particular ways that God is using the trial, and this is where faith comes in, knowing that all things work for good, but not necessarily seeing how. I think that in reality, sometimes trials are just a means to shake us and to cause us to refocus on the things that are eternal. I trust that it's the case for many here that God used a particular trial in our life to first draw us to himself. And I think that he uses trials in an ongoing way in our life to keep us near to the fountain of life. But as you struggle to see the particular ways that God could possibly be using the suffering that you're going through, be encouraged that one day you will understand John Flavel says it well in The Mystery of Providence, and I'll close with this quote. Oh, how ravishing and delectable a sight will it be to behold at one view the whole design of providence and the proper place and use of every single act which we could not understand in this world. What Christ said to Peter is as applicable to some providences in which we are now concerned as it was to that particular action. Jesus said, what I am doing you do not understand now, 
but you will understand hereafter. Let's pray. Father, you haven't promised us an easy life, a trouble-free life, a pain-free life. But in reality, you've promised something far greater. And I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to actually see that, grasp it, and that it would be a rock that would withstand any trial and that through your power manifesting itself in our weakness, that your glory would be displayed to the world around us. I pray that as a body, as a church that is weak, that your power would be manifested to those around us. Be glorified, and I do pray a special blessing for those who are currently struggling, wrestling, suffering, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would give them a peace that surpasses understanding and that your power would indeed be manifested in Jesus' name.